welcome to this episode of Risk On Air. As a solicitor, can you save a client from a bad bargain? What are your obligations to do so if you smell a rat? In this podcast, Janice Purvis, Solicitor and Manager of Practice Support Services at Law Cover, and Veronica Chapman, partner at Kennedy's, specialising in the area of professional indemnity disputes, discuss a solicitor's duty of care to avoid economic loss to a client and how this relates to managing risk in everyday legal practice. In short, to what extent are solicitors expected to act as a financial soothsayer for their clients? Thank you for joining us today, Veronica. Hi, Janice. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure. The topic of the day, mm. mortgages. Uh, from time immemorial, uh, solicitors have been advising on mortgage transactions, but historically there's been a grey area when it comes to a solicitor's duty to advise on the commercial wisdom of these transactions. Uh, Veronica and I um, will examine the unsettled legal principle of prenum prenumbral duties, there's my tongue again, and how three key cases have changed the risk in these areas and what you can do to manage that risk, which is probably the important point. O'Brien and Hooker Homes. Ah. Do you want to tell us about that, Veronica? Well, the facts are pretty dry, <laughs> so I, I, perhaps I won't even bore you with all of that, but I can give you a little bit of historical background and I can say that O'Brien is one of those cases which most solicitors, I think, practising in property and mortgages remember very clearly. It was, it, was a, it was a landmark case. It was a watershed, all of those platitudes and clichés, Janice. Yes. But only to the extent that I think solicitors or legal practitioners around the state heaved a massive sigh of relief when that decision was delivered. Because for the first time, I think we all felt in about, when was it, 1996, 95? or whenever the case was handed yeah, down, yeah. Um, I think we all felt that we actually had a clear statement confining the duty of solicitors to what one would normally expect. And this is a typical, typical um, case. Um, the couple had limited resources, education, experience and only basic financial planning. Um, and any solicitor would have seen that the couple did not have sufficient means to repay the mortgage and have any money left to live on. Um, the solicitor failed to explain the financial implications of entering into the particular transaction. And the court ruled at first instance that the solicitor had therefore failed to meet the requisite standard of care. The, soli the solicitor argued that there was no further duty beyond the retainer. In other words, to explain what the mortgage documents were and the effect of the mortgage documents. Solicitors, I think you'll agree, Veronica, yes. um, are not financial advisors, and more particularly um, under the um, professional indemnity insurance policies, they're not insured to provide financial exactly. advice. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think the significance of O'Brien at the time was that up until that point, there had been a fair few decisions which, in fact, did find solicitors liable for what I could call add-on responsibilities. Mm. And O'Brien was a definitive decision. It was, it, it's a very, very clear statement by the Court of Appeal as to confining your duty to the terms of your retainer and purely and simply that. So if your retainer is 
to advise on mortgage documents and what they mean, then that is what you do. And anything above and beyond that, one doesn't go. I love your um, description of add-on duties. <laughs> it's much, much easier to say, as it has become known in legal field, as the prenumbral duty. Yeah. Well, I've got to be honest, Janice, I can't pronounce that, so I say, <laughs> so say add-on, OK? Um, that's, that's the only Absolutely. way to do it. But I, 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 I also want to say about it, Brian, and, and this is where it becomes interesting and maybe I'm, being, maybe I'm being clever with the benefit of hindsight or 2020 vision, but there is an out in that decision. There's an out which the subsequent cases, which I think we're going to be talking about, um, pretty much rely on. And at the time when O'Brien was handed down, I don't think too many people paid attention to that out, if I can call it mm. that. Um, and I'm talking about there's a, there's a particular part of the judgment and not obviously the specific words, but what the Court of Appeal says very clearly is the solicitor's duty is found in the terms of the retainer, pause, and the ambit of any additional assumed responsibility, OK? And to my mind, following the history of the cases from that point on, it's that and additional assumed responsibility that subsequently assumes a lot of importance when you look at the history of the cases. And, of course, from law cover's perspective, um, you've been a major player in every single one of those cases, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, as Veronica pointed out, um, while at first instance um, a duty was found, um, the Court of Appeal um, felt um, very said very, very clearly um, that it wasn't. But the um, perfect, perfect segue into our next case, and this is very dear and near and dear to my heart because it was actually a file that I handled here at Law Cover for many a year. Um, it's Riz uh, and Perpetual Trustee and it's a 2007 case. Um, what this um, case indicates that City Corp isn't an isolated case. Yes. Yeah. And a similar situation arose in Riz um, where non-English-speaking immigrants refinanced their home. However, the difference here is that they were refinancing their home to invest in what turned out to be a fraudulent Ponzi scheme. They obviously didn't know it in the past. Um, this time the couple was experienced in business, notwithstanding their limited English, and they knew that the proposed scheme that they were investing in was very risky. Um, it was a case of if it looks too good to be true, it is too good, too good to be true, um, with interest rates being touted at about 48%, and they had personally seen money invested and um, being paid back to clients. So they knew it was risky, but still they were greedy, I suppose. Um, I didn't say that, did I? <laughs> the solicitors were retained to act on the loan and mortgage transaction only, not on the financial transaction. However, they did become aware that the clients were borrowing these additional funds for the risky investment and limited their retainer to advise on the mortgage transaction only, specifically in the file notes. The solicitors told their clients to seek independent legal and financial advice for the other transaction. They weren't in a position to do so. Um, the transaction ultimately failed and um, at first instance, 
Do you want to take it from here, Veronica? Wow, yes. Well, the court at first instance was extremely critical of the solicitor's conduct, I think it's fair to say. And, Janice, you were there for most of it. and Absolutely. Uh, you and were, I think very you unfairly, yes. Very, un very unfairly. And I think fundamentally the way I read the first instance decision was, again, going back to the point I made about the add-on, I think that is, in effect, what Justice Brereton, who delivered that first instance decision, was saying. What he was saying was that in the circumstances of the case where it ought to have been apparent to the solicitors that not only was there real risk, but there was, there was a threat to the financial well-being well of the clients. Absolutely. And that in those circumstances, the solicitor wasn't discharging her duty by simply saying, you must go off and seek independent legal and financial advice. You've got to go a little bit further. We're and not quite sure what that little bit further because is. Because he never said so. Do you have to put yeah. them in a taxi and... Well, exactly, and, yeah. exactly. But it was, it was enough, I think, for the first instance uh, decision or the first instance judge to be able to say there was more than that. You had to explain a little bit more about the implications of it. But again, no detail was given in that first instance decision as to what implications should have been alluded to and what physically could have been done. And of course, that, to my mind, was one of the main reasons why, the way I read the decision, the Court of Appeal was in its own polite way pretty darn critical of the first instance decision. Well, the first instance decision, and I quote um, from the judgment, a solicitor and pardon the, the double negatives here, they're not mine, they are um, Justice Burton's. A solicitor who is carrying out a transaction for a client is not justified in expressing no opinion when it is plain that the client is rushing into an unwise, not to say disastrous, adventure. I, I guess one thing that I took out of this particular comment was that if you had um, provided the um, clients with this advice um, and it had turned out to be a wonderful yeah, adventure exactly. and they had missed out on making a fortune... They'd sue you. They would sue you. Absolutely. For yeah. negligent advice. Yeah. So it and, was... in fact, that, that's what, that's what um, one of the decisions in the Court of Appeals specifically pointed out, mm. that you can't, just, you can't just express an opinion per se. Express an opinion about what? You know, exactly. express an opinion and say, oh, look, I'd do that if I were you. That's, that's not the way that, that the duty works. So once again, uh, like O'Brien, the Court of Appeal came to our rescue. Yeah. Um, and um, reversed the decision. Uh, they did. Um, but, and again, can I just highlight one very interesting point, though, absolutely. in reversing the decision? The president, I think it's the president of the Court of Appeal in Riz specifically quotes himself in an earlier case of David and David, which I think a lot of us would be familiar with as well. Especially at law cover. Especially at law <laughs> cover. And in that earlier decision, which they rely on in Riz as well, they specifically question the existence of this add-on or penumbral duty. They specifically question it. Yes. They say words to the effect of um, the existence of such a duty is to be strongly doubted. 
Okay. Yes. So I'm just trying to sort of put it into context as to where we go in a couple of years' time. But again, the court then goes on to say, and here's the crucial part, and with apologies, I'll quote this directly. Absolutely. Okay. If, however, the solicitor during the execution of the retainer learns of facts which put them on notice that the client's interests are endangered, unless further steps beyond the limits of the retainer are carried out, the solicitor may be obliged to speak. That's a heck of a caveat, isn't it? Absolutely. But it does provide a perfect segue into, into what uh, they ultimately did. Into what they ultimately did. Absolutely. I would like, just before we leave the Riz matter, yeah. I, I'd like to, to say that this particular solicitor in this matter, she was an employed solicitor, um, I think probably um, just over five years' experience. Um, her execution of the retainer was immaculate. She gave um, excellent um, explanations. She wrote incredibly detailed file notes, especially in respect of ask, um, advising them to get um, financial advice yeah. and the riskiness of the um, scheme. Um, so I think the comments made by Brereton at first instance were most uncalled for. Indeed. And this was a solicitor who I really, to this day, cannot see what else she would have done. And yeah. the Court of Appeal um, um, backed us up that way. Yes. But as I said, on and we go to um, Provident Capital um, versus Papa. I mean, that's a short name. Um, on all the podcasts, all the um, um, citations... Uh, will be on the website and you'll be easily able to access, access the judgments straight from there. Um, so after the two key cases, and they were key cases, with the clear message along PAPA. Yeah. Now, the facts in PAPA um, are not dissimilar uh, to Riz. The client, Mrs PAPA, uh, wanted to mortgage her home to give her some money to fund his gym business, which was struggling at the time. Um, Provident, who was the lender, required Mrs Papa to get independent legal advice as occurs in all mortgage transactions. The solicitor gave advice saying that if the son failed to pay back the money, she was going to lose her house. I mean, that's what a mortgage is. Exactly. Uh, she understood what a mortgage was. The son's business failed and Provident commenced proceedings for possession of Mrs Papa's house. Uh, Mrs Papa was not happy, of course, as you can imagine. Yes. Um, essentially, um, Mrs Papa said that the contract with Provident was unconscionable. She was a pensioner. How was she ever going to pay back the mortgage? Um, Provident then brought a cross-claim against the solicitor and alleging that he had provided negligent advice with respect to the mortgage and it was really the solicitor's um, problem. What was the first instance judgment? Well, Monica? the first instance judgment, again, to my mind, exactly followed what I think the Court of Appeal was trying to indicate in, in Reese. Mm. So I, I thought, with the greatest of respect, the first instance trial judge did an exemplary job. We all think that the first instance <laughs> yeah, trial yeah. judge did an exemplary job, which may give you a hint as to where as the to Court of happened. Appeal went. Yeah. Well, the first, first, instance. first instance judge... I think specifically and strictly applied the principle in RIS. Mm. You can find the retainer, you look at what you were obliged to do and you look at the explanations that were given and in those circumstances the trial judge found that there was no relevant breach of duty or retainer. 
Then, of course, we move on to the Court of Appeal. The President of the Court of Appeal sat in both Riz and in Papa. So you've sort of got a bit of a continuity. Absolutely. Okay. And what the Court of Appeal did, and it's a, it's a very, very long judgment with a lot of, a lot of um, examination of relevant authorities, but what I think it comes down to is this. They accept that solicitors are not ordinarily, stress the word ordinarily, <laughs> retained to advise on the wisdom of transactions. So that is your O'Brien point, absolutely. absolutely. It's also your uh, Riz point. point. But they then say, however, that the retainer, even though you may not be obliged to, to advise on the wisdom of the transactions, you actually do have an obligation to give advice on what they refer to as the practical implications. Now, if I can just pause there, and at the risk of being facetious, um, I, I've grappled a bit with the distinction between the practical implications and the wisdom of particular <laughs> transactions, and I'm not entirely sure that there's a distinction sufficient for you and I, for instance, to be able to explain it to mm. our fellow practitioners so that we all know exactly where we're going in terms of a roadmap. But all I can Are you do... saying we need yet another case? No, I'm, I, <laughs> I I, I'm certainly not saying that, although <laughs> from, a, from a professional viewpoint it would be nice <laughs> to, to actually get somebody who goes back to O'Brien, get a case that goes back oh, to O'Brien. But what, what Papa says is that you have to advise on the practical implications. So I hear you say, what does that mean in yes. the present circumstances? But what And what it meant in this case was that... According to the majority, what the solicitor had to do was to explain to the lender, to the, to the mortgagor, that if her son defaulted and if his business went bad, she would be at risk of losing everything. What he should also have done was give a very strong recommendation to the client that she should go off and get independent financial advice. And in making that recommendation or giving her that advice, he should have indicated to her the danger to her of her son's business collapsing. That's what the Court of Appeals says was intended by the expression practical implications. And that is the fact that um all the security was with her and yes. she was totally and utterly dependent on the success or otherwise of, this of the son's business. So it was not enough. It was not enough for the solicitor to say to his client, if the loan is not paid, you will lose your property. Yes. You should go one step further and you must say to the client or strongly advise the client, the success of your son's business is going to affect greatly right. your financial position. Therefore, you must go off and get independent financial advice. And, you know, essentially, um, the repayment was totally out of her control. Exactly. Uh, the son would be making the repayment. Exactly. She was a pensioner. Yep. Um, she was putting up for security her home. And actually, she had a small business that she ran out of um, there That's as right. well, That's right. um, um, which she supplemented her um, pension with. Um, 
had financial advice been recommended, it, it's interesting in this particular um, uh, circumstance that Mrs Papa had previously lent her money, her son money before. Exactly. And it had been repaid. Yep. Um, we um, raised the causation defence yes. um, that Mrs Papa was going to lend the money to her son no anyway. matter what, what the solicitor said to her as this is what mothers do with <laughs> with sons, I guess. Having got to have a son, I suppose, um, that's what mothers do. Um, well, yeah, sorry, go on. No, 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 that's all right. So um, he, McFarlane actually said, a solicitor's obligation is not simply to explain the legal effect of documents but to advise his or her client on the practical implications of the client's entry into the transaction of the subject of the advice. Yep. And again, as you said, I think very, very clearly what he should have um, said. He's gone that step further. It really wasn't an add-on per se, um, as they talked about. Um, yeah. Look, it, it... you disagree? No, I, I don't disagree, but it's, as, as I think you said in the introduction, it's very much a grey area. Now, I realise that's not helpful for the profession <laughs> or for practitioners. Not when it a, comes to black and white law. Not, not <laughs> when it comes to black and white law and trying to get yourself into some sort of framework Absolutely. where you can be confident that you are doing the right thing by yourself and by your clients, really. Um, I, I probably do think that what the Court of Appeals said is an add-on in, mm. in, in, a, in a way. Um, but I also at the same time think that the decisions in Riz and in O'Brien did leave it open for the decision in Papa to be made. To be made. I think, I think there is an out there, which, whichever way you look at it. But, but one of the things I find interesting about Papa and in a couple of subsequent cases which have not been reported or some in which I think a number of us have been involved in which have not gone the distance, if I can put it that mm. way. But the, the interesting thing about PAPA is that it highlights um, what, I, what I think is a fairly common factor in these sorts of cases. And to me, the, common, to me, the, the crucial factor in, in PAPA was that the loan was being obtained for the benefit of a family member and therefore the court... I think had perhaps an unexpressed concern that there was a conflict on the part of the client in terms of the client's best financial interests and her family interests. Absolutely. And I think without obviously the court having specifically said this, that is a real factor and that's a thread which does run through a number of these decisions. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And, and I mean, you can't just look at the transaction and just look at the documents and exactly. advise on the documents. Yeah. You've actually got to ask questions. You've got to ask why, how, when and why yeah. this money is being borrowed. Yeah. And in particular, in these days where it is so difficult to purchase a house yeah. and there are many parents who, again, are borrowing funds with security of their own Indeed. premises Indeed. and reliant on their children um, funding, the making the payments, yep. Yep. and um, also at other times going guarantee tour yeah. for the loans. Yeah. So you really need to ask more questions yep. um, as opposed to just looking at a mortgage document 
and saying here are the effects one, two, three. Absolutely agree with that. And and I and I think that there's been a lot of and Janice, you'd be more aware of this than, than I think most people. There's been a lot of uh, wringing of hands in relation to PAPA. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a case that I think has concerned the profession greatly in terms of opening up the goalpost, again, if I can put it that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. But I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that PAPA has been a great decision for the profession, but what I am saying is that it's an explicable decision. When you look at the background, when you look at the position in which... Mrs. Papper was in. Yes. Yes, she had loaned money before, but yet again it was to a family member. member. So there, there automatically was a conflicted interest mm. on her part. And I think that's what motivates the decision. So the first alarm bell certainly rings with yep. if the client is not getting the benefit of the money, be it the family exactly. member, exactly. a friend, or whoever yep. happens to exactly. be. Exactly. And, you know, you've got to, as I said, be proactive and know the circumstances of what yep. is happening. Um, and also, if, the, if you come into, um, the solicitor comes to know um, the information that is relevant to the client's decision to proceed with this um, transaction, again, the solicitor has to disclose this. Uh, in the PAPA case, um, it was, um, came out that the solicitor had, had heard, I think, Rumours that the son's business right. um, might have been in difficulty. That's right. Um, he had acted for the son in the past, was not acting for the son yep. at the moment, but apparently he had heard these rumours. That's right. So, again, um, that was a huge alarm bell. That should have been ringing all around town. In other words, the solicitor not only should have known but probably did know enough to have a suspicion as, as to the health of the son's business. And, and that, I think, was, of, of, was a very relevant factor. Okay. Yeah. And, and sorry, just, uh, again, expanding on that point, I, I think that is also a crucial point for all of us when we are advising clients in this sort of circumstance. The more, the more that we know Absolutely. or suspect about something, sure, it may not be in our strictly defined written terms of retainer or our costs agreement or anything else. It may not be there. But the more we actually know about the background, the more our duty, if I can call it that, Absolutely. increases. Um, it might not be in any of those documents, but I'm hoping that it will certainly be in the file notes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so what are the take-home messages? And, I mean, that's what we're um, here today yep. for is... What are the um, take-home messages? Consider the bigger um, picture beyond the legal advice. Um, the direct and indirect impacts, along with that magical phrase, the practical implications. Um, you've got to consider the vulnerability or experience of the client. Again, um, recently there has been um, a report into elder abuse. Mm. We have an ageing mm. population. Um, as I um, said before, we also have a situation where parents are lending children their money. Yeah. Their money. Um, you have to look at this context that are they a vulnerable client? Yes, and, and again, your point earlier, the, the vulnerability, I suppose, to express that in, in practical terms, one of, the, one of the indicia of vulnerability is going to be, is this client getting the benefit of what he or yes. she is 
putting herself in hock for, mm. you know, because that's what it what it boils down to, I would think. Absolutely. Yeah. And and in particular, I mean, I think rural practitioners will find this happens a lot. Um, the family tends to come in, and the family wants to sit in on the. Um, uh, discussions, yeah. and I think you've got to very clearly um, explain that this can't happen and that you've got to see your client. Again, it comes down to identifying your client. Who is your client and you must mm. see them alone. Where there may be multiple clients, again, it may be necessary to meet them totally separately away from each other depending on the situation. You've got to be aware of the conflicting and differing interests um, particularly when, as we say, the transactions involve family members. Um, English as a second language, this is coming up more and more. Um, please do not rely on a family member to interpret to for you. Yeah. Um, we've had one matter at Law Cover where the daughter said to the solicitor, Mum doesn't understand English very well, but don't worry, I'm here, I'll translate for you. And he thinking that this was appropriate, she spoke in Greek to Mum. The solicitor did not speak Greek. He had no idea what she was saying to Mum. You have to use an independent interpreter, which is not a big deal these no, days. No, it's not. You at can all. get them on the phone. Yep. Um, make sure you get one that's NATI accredited. Um, but again, that's an issue that um, often comes up in these um, mortgage cases. And of course, um, the big message, make it abundantly clear that you're not providing them with financial advice, yeah. that they should get some independent um, financial advice. If they don't do it, it's a matter for them. And as I said, keep a record of all the advice um, that you give them. Um, there are These are practical steps that you can take to uh, manage the risk associated with these types of transactions. Um, you need to be aware of the type of client and the type of transaction. And as any solicitor knows, if we're dealing um, with a businessman who has um, um, done many, many, many yep. commercial transactions, um, your advice, again, is going, is to, going be to be different. different. Yeah. So what's the, what's the, the final catch line um, <laughs> for, um, for the PAPA case? So we um, are left with um, the practical implications or, as um, I love Veronica's phrase, the add-ons and, of course, the word that none of us can say, the prenumbral duty, <laughs> is always going to be there. Yes, it is. It is always going to be there until, of course, there is another case. Un unless, until there is another case and I... Very frankly, doubt that's going to happen in the foreseeable future, Janice. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us here today, thank Veronica. You. Thank, thank you, Janice. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by LawCover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date. For cases and references mentioned in each podcast, visit lawcover.com.au.